On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You are tuned in to another edition of Americana Music Profiles, brought to you by Americana Rhythm Music Magazine and AmericanaMusicMagazine.com. I'm your host, Greg Tutwiler. Let's jump right in to the next exciting interview. Welcome to Americana Music Profiles. This episode is going to be a little different. I get the chance to talk to PBS documentary filmmaker David Hoffman. In 1965, a young David Hoffman traveled from New York to the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina to capture a story about Bascom Lamar Lunsford. Bascom was running a music festival in Asheville for mountain music dancers and singers. The result of that film became the first ever televised program about bluegrass music. In this episode, David and I talk about the history of the film, Mr. Lunsford, and the historical significance of this program. Hi, David. Thanks for taking my call today. I really uh, am glad to get the chance to talk to you about this. Very pleased to be with you, Craig. Thank you. Thank you. So um, uh, we're, we're going to talk about the uh, uh, Bluegrass Roots TV show that ran on public television. Um, I think I, I heard you say that you were uh, 23, maybe, when you did that. Is that right? <laughs> Well, think of the time. It's 1965. Yeah. <laughs> there had never been a show, a bluegrass show on national television. Right. And in fact, in fact, maybe there was a music show or two on which someone appeared, you know, a Johnny Cash kind of guy. But there was never a show that actually looked at the people. And so I was a 23-year-old filmmaker, and I was sitting on Long Island uh, starting my career and read in Time magazine okay. about this guy named Bascom Lamar Lunsford from uh, the Asheville area who had a music festival. And a whole bunch of us kids on Long Island uh, were listening to late night Grand Old Opry on Saturday night. Oh, all right. Broadcast on, I think it was WSM yeah. out of Nashville. And I'm not sure where the station came out of, but we just went nuts for the music. We'd never heard anything like this. Every musician was fabulous. The music was great. The voices were so good. Couldn't believe it. So we didn't know much about it. So I write this guy, Bascom Lunsford, and um, he's 82 years old. And At the time, he, he said, was. Yeah, I, I've heard something about filmmaking, he said, and I, we do have a television. <laughs> so sure, come down. So I got on a plane with another guy, and a 16-millimeter camera and a Nagra recorder. It was a 26-pound analog recorder. Wow. Never been on a plane. That's my first time on an airplane. Really? And I flew to North Carolina, went to Asheville. Some guy gave us a free room and board. And we show up the next morning, and we're with Bascom in South Turkey Creek, about 13 <laughs> miles from Asheville. And he says, well, I'm going to take you as I go around and pick the people for my festival. Oh, wow. And he knew just about everybody, so everybody, everybody he picked was unbelievably good. Wow. That's and that cool. was it. It ran on primetime PBS, which at that time was not PBS. It was called National Educational Television out of New York. And it got the cover of TV Guide. Wow. And a full-page review because people not only loved the music, but 
they had never seen people like this yeah. storytelling, as you know very well, as we all know very well, all the yeah. of this music. What do you? What kind of feedback did you get um, from? Did, did you get feedback from viewers uh, around the country that that saw that and and had different experiences writing back to you? There wasn't any time that wasn't that was before the time when that kind of thing occurred. Uh-huh. Certainly on national educational television. Okay, but Baskin and his people lost it. They had no idea they were that good. They were that entertaining. Oh, okay, okay. You know, they saw themselves as just. Performing, Bascom said they were good, but now they were on film and they watched themselves. Everybody always thought they could have looked better. And my camera was 49 pounds and had a battery pack. So it was pretty primitive, and I was just learning my craft. Yeah, yeah, wow. And did I read correctly or or hear you say that you were actually there for six weeks? Is that right? Yes. Wow. At that time, you know, you shot... 10-minute reels, and it took about 20 or 30 minutes to load everything up. Again. Really? Okay. Uh, even with all the efforts to get no hair in the gate, I was what we used to call it. I got constant hairs in the gate. That was a big drag. Um, you can see that in some of the footage. But the thing is so much a classic that, I don't know if you're aware of this, but about 10 years ago, the Library of Congress came to me and said, we'd like to buy the original when you die, oh, wow. and we'll pay That's you now. Awesome. So they had to have an act of Congress, <laughs> and they bought it from me. So when I pass on, um, it goes to Washington, and that's that's part of American history. Wow, that is so cool. Did, did the, um, the folks that were in the film, did they have a concept of what was going on when you were shooting? I mean, had they seen been around anybody doing that type of production before? No, no one had... I mean, Alan Lomax's people, he had come with a tape recorder, you right. know, he and his dad, right. some years before, but they never recorded these people. They were they were more the, the groups and the larger groups than Bascom. Bascom was sort of the real underground thing. So, no, they, and once they, I came with Bascom, A, and B, I loved the music, and even though I was a New Yorker, nobody really minded that. They thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. And, um... <laughs> They were super friendly to me and very cooperative, and I just was thrilled to record it. Then I've loved it ever since. I still love that music and those people. Was this a, a culture shock for you to come from New York into the rural parts of the Carolina like that? Um, well, you know, now I know myself because I'm 78 years old. I didn't know this then, but my whole life as a filmmaker has been about culture. Okay. So there is no culture that I've ever been in that I didn't feel uh, comfortable, uh-huh. wonderful. Uh-huh. I've been in some pretty rough cultures, but I've never been in a culture as rich, as you know well, as rich uh, in terms of storytelling, right. music, yeah. dance, art form, humor, yeah. Yeah. as, as uh, the mountains of North Carolina I don't know about the rest of Appalachia. I never went to Kentucky or West Virginia. That may be somewhat different. But in North Carolina, that culture was and still is because I hear from grandchildren sure, of the people yeah. in the film. Yeah. And that culture is just booming. I mean, there's lots of young people doing it. Well, for those folks, what, what you were 
trying to bring out to the rest of the world was everyday life to them. That that was just entertainment. You know, it, where we might watch a football or basketball game, they got together and sang and danced. That's right. Yeah. So that that's uh, to be able to capture and, that. And here was the thing. Here was the thing. The culture that I that I uh, spent 25 years of my life in is rural Maine. Okay. And in rural Maine, one of the nice things about that culture is that young people and old people both respect each other. So if you're walking down the street and you're an old guy like me, a young guy will pass and say, good afternoon, sir. Mm. Today, that yeah. will happen. Okay. Um, in the North Carolina mountain culture, it didn't matter how good a musician were, right. you were. If you tried, you got supported by the others. So yeah, yeah. I love that aspect. There were young guys starting out. And they were geniuses, and there were very subtle differences. I mean, I had a very good ear, I felt, but Bascom taught me a lot about, you know, this guy's good, but this guy's real good, and okay. here's why. Yeah. Wow. He knew. There's a scene in the film, which is a constant uh, source of disagreement on my YouTube channel, where, which I call the best mountain fiddler I ever heard. Okay. And Bascom thought he was the best mountain fiddler he ever heard. His name was lost John. He was well known in North Carolina. Uh -huh. And that's debated on my channel all the time, that particular clip. But what Bascom showed me was this kind of mix of the grit of the fiddle. The notes, the grit, and the way you made this, when you wanted to make it gritty, you made it really gritty. And I understood that uh, from him. Okay. Adam, you know, when he said this guy's got a beautiful voice, sings like an angel, I could hear the difference between that and other people yeah. who had very nice voices. Aubrey Ramsey is one of my characters, and he's also a clip in on my YouTube channel, um, and he was a banjo picker with a gorgeous voice, and he just lived in a little teeny house in Madison County, and he hunted groundhog, ate groundhog, I had a piece of groundhog with him, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> and, uh, and he never. He had some albums. He had some albums, but he never became super famous. But he was just great. Wow, that's cool. You you, you see the movie, and not just yours, but you see a, a a movie, and you don't connect with what was involved in putting that together. And and so, being there for six weeks, what was the other time like when you weren't shooting? Were you immersed in the in the culture and the the lives of the folks around there? Yes. Um, we had a lot of technical problems because we were not thorough professionals and the camera equipment was new. The first guy who made a professional movie with these kind of handheld 16-millimeter cameras, they were very heavy, um, was only made two years before. Oh, wow. Okay. And he was a New York documentary filmmaker, much older than me, and he did a show on the Kennedys, behind the scene on John Kennedy in the White House, and I saw that show, so I was in college at that time, and I rented one of those cameras, and I tried it. So a lot of the time we spent with our equipment trying to make to line, to load up the camera. Each reel was about 20 minutes. So you had to clean it, and then you ran it through all these little loops and things, and mm, mm. it was pretty tough. And yeah. Then when you got all done, you kind of closed it up, and then you got everything ready, and there was a wire between the microphone and the tape recorder and the camera. So they 
we always had to be close together, me and the other guy I made it with. Okay. And there was just the two of us. And of course, at that time, you're you're not even sure what you're getting when you get done shooting, right? Because that all has to uh, be developed. And, yes. There yeah. wasn't a reflex camera; it didn't exist. So you're looking at a tube that comes out of the side of the camera, which you hope is what the camera is yeah. recording. Yeah. yeah, right. And and not and even where you're lighting or anything. I didn't understand the zoom. Okay. I, I'd never had a zoom lens, and there's quite a few zooms in the in the film, and. People get quickly used to it because the material is now so classic. Right. But right. I sure didn't like that. I never zoomed again when I got back to New York and I had it processed in a laboratory and came out and they made you a print a copy which you could edit and I saw all those zooms. I didn't like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you get a chance to experience one of his festivals, see some of these folks on stage? No. There is footage. From the 1950s, I have a little bit of it on my YouTube channel. A German television crew came to Bascom's Festival, and they recorded just a bit, and it's really classic. Um, it's kind of like the Grand Old Opry, in a way. The audience cheers and laughs. I felt, and I, I'm quite convinced, that the seeing people in their natural environment is very different than seeing them on stage. Sure, yeah, I agree. That was the uniqueness of driving around with the equipment and going with Bascom. There's nobody who, you know, actually even ever felt uncomfortable being filmed. They just, nobody ever seen themselves on film. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the dance scene and some of the other scenes, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them in the film, of course, are, are kind of short clips of, I, I'm guessing, which was longer uh, um, moments of time when you were actually there, right? Right. So was that a, uh, a dance party at the house that, that went on for a while? Well, we, Bascom and I talked out scenes. Oh, okay. And he felt that dance was part of the story. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have a professional hall, so his house, which, by the way, still exists on South Turkey Road. Really? Creek cool. Road. Still exists. <laughs> Somebody sent me a photograph of it. So we rolled up the carpet. It was wood floor. Don't know what it did to the wood floor. <laughs> and uh, he got this dance caller and his team, which was called the Blue Ridge Mountain Dancers. And the... The same year or the next year, I think maybe the next year, they performed at the Newport Folk Festival. Oh, cool. And okay. that was a major moment because they're a whole nother group of rising folk enthusiasts saw clog dancing. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, so that, that scene, as you may know, is one of my most popular scenes on my channel. Yeah. And uh, I'm very proud of that scene because I danced with the camera. Oh, right, I, right, yeah, yeah. I think, I think I you said that. I yeah. just couldn't not do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I didn't have any rules to say you shouldn't do that. <laughs> so I just got involved with them and the kids, and they were all smiling at me. You could see it in the, in the film. Right. I'm smiling at them, and I'm dancing along, and they think it's very funny. <laughs> were you able to uh, keep in touch with anybody after this or, or, or check back in to, to see where they, have, uh, where they had gone from that point? Um. One person in the film is still not only alive, but she's still dancing. Really? And she must be, uh, I'm going to guess 80, just 80 or a little bit older than 80, maybe. 
and the others, no. I, 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 uh, there was another film that I made in nineteen, uh, in late nineteen eighties for PBS, now National Public Television, mm -hmm. which has a series called American Experience, and I made an American Experience show on Baskin Lamar Lunsford, who is then long gone, and why he did what he did. And that film, which you can also see, it's called Bascom Lamar Lunsford. Um, and that, that film, um, I went back and I interviewed some of the people who were in the original film. Oh, right, Oprah okay. Ramsey, as an old man, is in that film. And uh, Dance Caller, whose name I don't remember, is also in that film. And Bascom's children are in that film, who remembered the film. Some of them were kids, some of them weren't alive yet. <laughs> hmm, hmm. Did, did so they I did get that chance? Yeah. Did did the folks there get a chance to see the 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 no. film in its entirety? No. 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 At wow. I'm almost nobody had a television set. Bascom had one. I saw that in the video. <laughs> yeah, Bascom had a television, and so he saw it, and from and his comment about it after was pretty good. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but I found that at that time, a lot of um, the people I filmed in those years. When they actually saw themselves, they thought I had done a pretty good job. They thought their arms looked wrong, or something was wrong, or I should have done that different, but they should have uh, done that different. Yeah. Now we're all filmed so much that you're used to all kinds of errors that people weren't at that time. Right, right, yeah. And I did. I think I read where you have made some other bluegrass-oriented films, too, outside of this, right? Right. Aside from making the one for American Experience on Bascom and about what motivated him, which I think is important, Craig. What was the motivator? But other than that, I was fortunate enough to propose to PBS in 1972 that I make a film on Earl Scruggs, who they had never heard of, right? but who was giant. Of <laughs> yeah, course. for and sure. The yeah. moment when we contacted Earl to make that film, uh, Earl was broadening his base. He had played with Latin Scruggs. He had played with... Uh, so many different people by that point that he decided he was going to stretch out the banjo and see who else he could play with. So we went on the road with him and created Earl Scruggs, His Family and Friends, mm. which is a classic album now made from my recordings. Right. And he was, and Bob Dylan is in that and Joan Baez and Doc Watson and uh, several of the old-time, uh, the Morris Brothers, old-timers who were much older than Earl. Uh -huh. So I made that. That was a 90-minute television special and that it's was a great a, film that uh, was a, a pbs special as well right yes it ran on pbs but more importantly it's today kind of a, the only it's the only real documentary on earl okay he wasn't very comfortable being filmed he didn't like being filmed hmm. wonderful man hmm. god what a great person and of course just thinking right now about it that um of course earl passed on Doc passed on. They were beautiful friends. Yeah, right. A lot of those uh, old guys are even. son, Stevie, committed suicide. Mm. I, he's in my film. Uh, Randy, the great Randy Scruggs, Earl's son, the incredible studio guitarist, and mm. played open. He's 16 in my film. Mm. He passed on. And I think this Carrie is also dead. Wow, wow. So that's kind of sad. Yeah, and plus Louise, yeah. Earl's wife. But boy, what a great man. Yeah. Uh, Great man because he was generous with everyone, really respected everyone. He was a farmer guy, 
turned great musician who never thought that he was one little millistep better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. That's a real value to me. I I cherish that. Well, I feel like a lot of folks in the bluegrass music industry, you mentioned something about the people there and how it was... It was more about if you if you just put your heart into it, they they were okay with that. You know, obviously there's levels of of talent, but in the bluegrass world, it, it, there's a lot of camaraderie, and it's um, people enjoy hearing somebody that's really good, but they're also that's very true. accepting of those that are just learning or becoming. That's good. true. Yeah. Well, one not I mean, if one guy I'm, I, he's in my film, Errol Sparks film, who didn't have that was Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe was an egomaniac, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I met him and spent time with him, and Earl told me that, I mean, in my film, he, Earl, um, Bill introduces Earl in the scene, and he says, he's the second banjo picker that ever played for me, and that would be typical of Monroe, yeah. like he's certain somebody, he's not the first of anything. Right, 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 yeah, um, yeah. yeah, very much I a perfectionist. Bill Monroe's music is beyond magnificent. Sure, though. yeah. Uh, I, w- I want to back up. You, you mentioned something um, about the the uh, the motivator, and and that's really important. So yeah, I had to when 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 PBS hired me for that. I had to figure out what that motivator was, and I went back over my footage and I read all of Bascom's stuff, and I realized that the motivator was he despised how the mountain people were being portrayed. Mm-hmm. Okay. He despised it. He had read the early stuff that had been talked about, these people being marrying brothers and sisters, being stupid, uh, being back up in the hills just drinking moonshine, none of which I saw. I did see some rough stuff, but nothing like what was described as the prejudices against these right. people, yeah. some of which still goes on today. Right. So for him, Beverly Hillbillies was disgusting. I see, yeah, I would it think was, so, it, yeah. It kind of made fun of his people, and yeah. he was d- determined not to have that be the case, to show respect for the music and the dance and the culture and the humor and the way that they spoke. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think I read where that is why you see him on film in a, in a dress shirt and tie uh, to, to <laughs> help right. portray that image forward. That's, that's absolutely right, yeah. Show respect. Yeah, right. and he felt it, and we certainly, my, my film, my sound man and I, we felt total respect. I was changed by that because yeah. I saw a culture that cherished the art form as a part of life. Right, yeah. You know, and I'd come from a classical music scene in New York where these people were different. They were superior in some yeah, ways. They yeah. were playing Bach and Beethoven. Yeah. Any any thoughts of, of uh, doing a uh, a part two or a retrospect of uh, where well, they are know, now? Greg, there's probably thousands of people on my YouTube channel who have asked about that. Yeah. And here I am, 78 years old, perfectly healthy. I still could do it and I should do it, but it's just too expensive and there's nobody to pay for it. I mean, yeah. in those days, it was cheap-ish, and, <laughs> and, and, the, and, and the television systems really cared yeah. Nowadays, it's a show every night, the next show next night. I love Netflix documentaries, and I love HBO documentaries. They're really good. But they want, you know, murder and right. Titanic sinking and yeah. really yeah. rough stuff. Yeah. And there isn't any really rough stuff here. What there is here is 
beautiful if that's what you love. So right. I've never gotten the chance. And if I had the chance, I would show uh, two things. One, we'd go and find those people and their children and their grandchildren. So yeah. the question is, what happened to them? Yeah, right. Uh, that's one question. The second question is, and who carries on that tradition today? And we know lots of people do. Right. And why? Yeah. How are they doing that? Yeah, yeah. How are they doing that? Are they still playing it? Of course, they play it in church, but that's the religious side of, of right. um, the music. The gospel, how, yeah. how are they families carrying it on? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I couldn't believe Randy Scruggs when he was 16. He picked up the guitar at 7. His father taught him a few things, but not much. But it was completely around him. That music was around him. Sure, so, yeah, yeah. Like so many of those musicians, he learned it having it around him. Yeah. And yeah. that... that um, I'd love to do it, yeah. yeah, yeah it should well. be done, because 50% of the comments on my clips say, oh, God, this is a great time, a shame that it's not there anymore, and yeah. it's just wrong. Yeah, yeah, true, true. But you, you almost have to go there to, to, to realize that. For sure. Well, thanks so much, David, for taking the time to talk to me. This has just been so much fun to learn about this film and, and your career, and I just really appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Americana Music Profiles. Find us on iTunes at Americana Music Profiles and on the Internet at AmericanaRhythm.com. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.